you have your Bibles, please turn them now to 1 Timothy chapter 6, continuing to make our way through this book and through this chapter. This evening we find before us verses 6 through 10, so I'm going to read these five verses, dovetailing well with what we heard this morning from Genesis. And before I read these five verses, I remind you as always, brothers and sisters, this is the word of the living God. So let us attend to it as such and receive it from him as such. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Beloved of God, the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. So let's ask him now to Teach us his eternal word by his spirit. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we humbly acknowledge together before you that heaven is your throne and the earth is your footstool. And so there is no house we can build for you. There is no place for you to rest for all these things your hand has made and so all these things came to be. And yet we also know, Lord, that you dwell with those who are humble and contrite in spirit, with those who tremble at your word. And so we pray that as you have called us to worship you and we draw near, that you would make us such a people this evening. Dwell with us and deepen our fellowship with you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, as we jump back into chapter 6 again this evening, you'll remember that in the previous section, verses 3 through 5, Paul was warning the Ephesian church and warning Timothy that there are false teachers in their midst. And one of the things that he says about these false teachers is that their motive for teaching a certain thing and for giving off a certain affectation for appearing a certain way that is godly their motivation for doing so is because at the end of the day, they want to put money in their pockets. They're out to make themselves rich. And so Paul was warning the church about this. And he takes this opportunity as he's talking about this evil desire, this greed that the false teachers have to address the church and Timothy and us to say, you ought to be content. You ought to be content with God. You ought to be content with what God brings into your life. And brothers and sisters, this is such a perennial warning that the church needs, isn't it? Because we struggle with that, don't we? We struggle to be content. And we can see if we go back far enough to the book of Genesis, we see that at least in part, the whole reason that the fall happens is because Adam and Eve aren't content with their circumstances, are they? 
They're not content with the lot that God has given them. He gives them all things to enjoy except this one tree and says, don't eat of it. And then the serpent comes and says, God's actually withholding something good from you. You shouldn't be content with that. There's more. And so Eve would not have reached out her hand and taken the fruit if she wasn't at that point in time discontent. And the sad reality is that then all of fallen humanity is plunged into malcontent, aren't they? So that our world is one of constant striving for more, constant discontent. And even as Christians, brothers and sisters, those who are a new creation in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have this struggle between the flesh and the spirit, don't we? And so while we're not given to discontentment, not completely given over to it anymore, we still fight against it, don't we? We still struggle to trust God's provision, as we were reminded of this morning. To trust that God is good and wise in what he brings into our lives. And to know that we can be content because he's given himself to us in his son. And yet still... We struggle, don't we? And so this message is not just for Timothy, it's not just for the Ephesians, but it's for us. It's the Lord in his word waving the flag, warning us, do not be given over to discontentment. And so this evening, as we look at these five verses, what we're going to see is four reasons that Paul gives us why we should be content. Four reasons why we should be content. First of all, We're going to see that we should be content because godliness with contentment is great gain. We're going to see that in verse 6, that we should desire this because it's not the kind of gain that the false teachers are looking for, but it is gain to us as God's people to pursue godliness with contentment. Second of all, we'll see that we should be content because you can't take it with you. We'll see that very clearly in verse 7. We should be content because we don't get to take this life with us into the next. Thirdly, we should be content, Paul says, because you don't need much. You don't need a whole lot. God didn't create you to need many things. And those things that you do need, he promises that he'll give to you. So we'll see that in verse 8, that you don't need much. And then fourthly, finally, we'll see that we should be content because greed will ruin you. In verses 9 and 10, we'll see that Paul lays out this ugly picture of if you give yourself over to greed and a desire for more, how it will destroy you in this life and in the next. And so here's my hope and prayer, brothers and sisters, that this evening, as we hear the voice of our good shepherd in his word, that we would be warned tonight against covetousness and be driven to repent where we need to repent and rejoice in Christ together, and grow in our faith so that we increasingly are more and more content in God himself. So let's look first then at how godliness with contentment is great gain. That's the first reason that Paul gives us in verse 6 as to why we should be content. He says there, you see, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Remember, Paul was explaining the psychology to us of the false teachers, saying that they were doing what they were doing because they thought that by doing so, they would enrich themselves. 
They would further themselves in life. And Paul wants to kind of undermine their motivation and say, well, they're kind of right. There is gain. It's not the kind of gain that they're seeking. But when you couple godliness with contentment, there's the qualifier, true godliness, not just a veneer, not just a facade. It looks good on the outside, but there's death on the inside. When you couple that with contentment, that actually is a means of great gain, spiritually speaking, for this life and the next. And so what we see Paul doing here is he's picking up this historical understanding of contentment that the Stoic philosophers really brought to the table. Stoic philosophers like Seneca, I don't know if you know this, but John Calvin, his first published work was actually a commentary on one of the works of Seneca. So anyway, interesting fact. But he was a Stoic philosopher, Seneca was. And what the Stoic philosophers sought, their ideal was that you find sufficiency in and of yourself, you basically get at peace with all nature, so that even as everything around you is chaotic and out of control, you're self-controlled and you find sufficiency within yourself so that nothing really rattles you. And you're able to keep on marching almost like a machine on your mission without emotions taking you all over the place. You're seeing a slight resurgence of this actually in our culture because we're so given to our passions that some people are saying, this can't be right. And so some people are rediscovering the Stoic philosophers. And Paul says, there's a lot of overlap between what the Stoics have said and what Christians have to say about contentment. Because that's the idea that the Stoics talked about. But Paul says, the Christian in their contentment does not find sufficiency in themselves. They don't look to themselves inwardly and say, I have everything that I need here given to me by nature, and so I can live the life that I need to without any sort of external concern. No, Paul says what? He says the Christian is content, not in himself, but in Christ. In the grace of God, the covenant kindnesses of God, the love of God to us in his son. If we have him, then we have everything that we need. Which is exactly why Paul says what he says in Philippians 4, verses 11 through 13. This is not a verse to bring up when you're doing some athletic feat. It's for everyday life. And here's what Paul says. For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. There's our idea. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So what's the secret that Paul has learned? It's not that there's sufficiency in and of myself. As appealing as the Stoic philosophical approach might seem to life and the inner life. No, he says, Christ is my all and all. He is my sufficiency. And so if I have him, I can be content because he's all that I need. Now, lest we think that this idea of contentment is anything new, the Stoic philosophers didn't come up with that, ultimately, and neither did the Apostle Paul. I mean, let's stop and think about this. Where in the Old Testament does your mind go when I say the word contentment? Here's where your mind should go. It's where Pastor Chad took us this morning in the 10th commandment. 
The tenth commandment is what? You shall not covet anything that your neighbor has. Anything about your neighbor, anything that God has given him. And so we're reminded yet again, aren't we, that the Ten Commandments are not just about don't do these things. Yes, they're about that. But as they're commanding by God, do not do this, they're also commanding the opposite, which is what we should do. So don't be covetous. Instead, be what? Content. Be content. I love how the Westminster Larger Catechism puts this. I think this is really helpful. Listen to question and answer 147. The question is, what are the duties required in the 10th commandment? And listen to the answer. The duties required in the 10th commandment are such a full contentment with our own condition and such a charitable frame of the whole soul toward our neighbor as that all our inward motions and affections and they use this word touching, which means concerning him, our neighbor, tend unto and further all that good which is his. Isn't that beautifully put? In other words, they're saying, this is how you obey the 10th commandment. You're satisfied in God and the lot that he's given you in life. And because that's true, because you have peace with God, you don't covet what your neighbor has. You actually rejoice in the good that God has done your neighbor. You're not envious. You're not jonesing for what they have, right? You're thankful that God has blessed them in so many ways. Why? Because you're content in God and in what he's brought into your life. So do you see what the problem is? The problem is not what we do have or what we don't have. The problem is not our material possessions. The problem is not our circumstances. The problem is you and me. The problem is my greed my lack of contentment, my belief in the lie that God hasn't given me enough. And so you see, so long as that attitude is there, it doesn't matter what God gives me or what God takes away, I am always going to be discontent. And so brothers and sisters, since that's our problem, we must be on guard. We can't let our guard down for a moment because the world and the flesh and the devil are constantly trying to tell us that the way to happiness is actually by making us more and more discontent. If you just get this thing, if you just buy this car, if you just have this net worth, if you just get your kid this toy, and it's just this bottomless pit that will never be satisfied even if you were given the whole world. So don't believe the lie. Instead, let us see the lie for what it is, repent of our discontentment, and look to Christ in faith, thanking God that in his covenant faithfulness, he has sent his son to be perfectly content in our place and to die on the cross for our sins of discontentment and trust that by his grace, as he used the means of grace, he will make us more and more content in him. Because godliness with contentment is great gain. That's what great gain is, not the hogwash that the world is constantly trying to sell us. So the first reason we should be content is because with godliness, contentment is a means of great gain. Secondly, let's look at how we should be content because you can't take it with you. Look at verse 7. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything anything out of the world. 
Such a profound truth, and yet it's so simple, isn't it? Kids, do you understand what Paul is saying here? Let me ask you a question, children. I don't, hopefully, I don't know, maybe you have seen a baby right after it comes out of the womb. It comes out of the womb, comes out of its mom, and does it come out of the womb fully clothed? Dressed to the nines? Wow, look at that nice outfit that God put this baby in. Made that very convenient for us. No, the baby comes into this world completely naked. And you'll never see a baby come out of the womb with a handful of cash. Hey, mom and dad, here's the start of my 529 plan. That's not what happens. The baby comes into this world with nothing, not even clothes, not even a little money for mom and dad, especially for mom after all she's been through. And when you die, the dead person, you know, we might put them in nice clothes. We might put some jewelry on them. And you could have a whole pyramid and put all kinds of stuff, kill your relations and bury them with you. None of it goes with you. I'm reminded of that anecdote of J.D. Rockefeller. You remember that big business tycoon back in the day? And someone asked his chief accountant, you've probably heard this before, hey, how much did he leave behind when Rockefeller died? And the chief accountant, being sharp-witted, said, all of it. Every red cent. He wasn't able to take any of it with him. And that's the state of our situation, brothers and sisters. Concerning our stuff, concerning this life, both our entry into it and our exit out of it are exactly the same. We show up with nothing and we leave with nothing. That's why Job says in Job 121, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The preacher says in Ecclesiastes 5.15, as he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. That's the reality. And yet, the other reality is that we seem to cling so tightly to this life, don't we? So tightly to it. A great example of this is Ananias and Sapphira. Remember them back in Acts chapter 5? What's going on there? Jerusalem, the saints are pooling their resources that they might care for the poor. And Ananias and Sapphira must have been well-to-do because they have land. And so they sell some of it. And they conspire to lie, to try to lie to the Lord to try to lie to the apostles, Peter in particular, by saying, hey, we sold this land and look all this money we got for it. Here you go. And so I guess the Lord tells Peter, and so Peter knows that this isn't all the money they got from the sale. And so Peter rebukes him and says, why are you lying about this? Listen, you didn't have to sell the land and give the money to us. And you also, you could have just sold it and said, here aren't all of the proceeds, but here's some of it. They're trying to make themselves look more generous than they are, and they're also, in the love of money, trying to hold some of it back. And so Peter says, behold, the young men are at the door to carry your dead body out, and boom, drops over dead. And then Sapphira does the exact same thing. You see how, even when we know, naked we came into the world, naked we leave it, we still cling to these things, and it ends up costing us our lives in this life in the next. Or think of the rich young ruler. He comes to Christ and says, what must I do? And Christ says, leave everything behind and follow me. He can't do it, can he? Why? Because Luke says he was extremely rich, which isn't ultimately the problem, right? The problem isn't to have a lot of wealth. Wealth isn't the problem. It's that he loved it. It's that he couldn't walk away from it. 
And so he walks away instead of from his wealth, this life. He walks away from the one who is eternal life itself, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because they lost sight of the reality that we come into this world with nothing and we leave it with nothing. Which is exactly why Jesus says in Luke 12, 15, your life is more than your possessions. Isn't that hard to believe sometimes? Because we can see it. We can feel it. We can smell it. We can taste it. We can touch it. And our life being hid with Christ, we can't see it. We can't feel it. We can't taste it. We can't touch it. And so, brothers and sisters, I think the admonition here is that we need to regularly reflect on and meditate on the reality, not morbidly, but realistically, look at everything in your life. You should do this once in a while. Take stock of your entire life and go, one day, I will leave all of this behind. My friends, my family, my loved ones, my material possessions, my house, all of it. I'm going to leave it behind. Reminding yourself you came into the world with none of it and you'll leave with none of it. Because this kind of reflection and meditation, it's like it sobers us up from getting drunk on the world. Reminding ourselves that from the dust we came and it's from the dust that we shall return. I'm struck by that when I hear that at a funeral. If you're lucky enough to go to a funeral where you hear that. And so we should pray as the psalmist does in Psalm 90 verse 12, teach us to number our days that we might get a heart of wisdom. Because at the end of the day, brothers and sisters, our treasure is not our earthly possessions, but Christ. Because he is our life, says Paul in Ephesians 3 verse 4. Not ultimately this life, but Christ himself. So we should be content because when paired with godliness, it's great gain. And because you can't take your possessions with you, you can't take this life with you. And thirdly, let's see that we should be content because we don't need much. You don't need much. Look at verse 8. Paul says, but if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. You see what Paul is saying? He's saying God made us as image bearers with not much required for subsistence. You need food and you need shelter. You say, well, wait, doesn't it say clothing there? Yeah, but that Greek word can very easily just be translated covering. That's what it means. So it could be clothing, covering, shelter, covering. I think that's what we're talking about here. So what are the basics? Food and shelter. And kids, anytime I talk about something like this, how basic our needs are, my mind drifts to that great old classic Disney movie, The Jungle Book. Not the live action one the animated one, and you remember, I don't even seen the live action one, so come tell me if they sing the song in the live action one afterwards. But remember, Baloo the bear meets Mowgli, and he says, I'm just living off the bare necessities of life. I'm not worried about much, and they just sort of come to me, and I'm content with that, and, and so that's the way you should be too, real carefree attitude to life. And Baloo's on to something there. We're created to be able to exist with just the bare necessities of life. Here's the question, though. What are those? Real simple. Food and shelter. And I think our culture is enamored by this. In our culture of affluence, I don't know if you noticed, but there's a rise of popularity, and I don't hate this trend, of these survival shows. Have you noticed that? They take these contestants, they put them out in the middle of nowhere, feel like the, the clock got turned back 500 years, 
except they give them some pretty nice modern day equipment to survive. But they put them out there and say, let's see how long you can live in this misery. Whoever lasts the longest wins. And what do they spend their whole time, wherever they're at, out in the wilderness, spending all of their energy, all of their time thinking about two things. You know what they are? How do I get food consistently in my belly so I have calories to burn? And how do I make sure that I build a shelter and keep a shelter in place so that I'm protected from the elements, protected from animals? It's real simple, and that's how they live their lives. Well, not all of their lives, but for a period of time. But that's all you really need. And it's so easy for us to lose sight of that, isn't it? It's so easy for us to think we need more, more, more. And and the more we add, the more we think that we need. And so it's just this never-ending pursuit of happiness that constantly eludes us. And yet, even though all we need are the basics of life, food and shelter, Jesus says we shouldn't even fret about those. Don't be anxious about that. He says in the Gospels, Matthew 6, Luke 12, he says your loving Heavenly Father knows you need those things And he's going to provide them to you. So then here's the question. Do we trust him to provide? Or are we constantly worrying, constantly fretting, constantly anxious? I think oftentimes we are. And you want to know part of the reason why we are? It's because we aren't just thinking about today. We're demanding to know what's going to happen tomorrow. And the day after that. And the day after that. And yet, how does Jesus teach us to pray for what we need? He says in the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. And so that's what he teaches us to ask the Father for. Not our weekly bread. Not our monthly bread. Not our annual bread. Not our retirement bread. He says, ask for what you need today. Lord, give me what I need today to do what honors And pleases you. And so here's the point, brothers and sisters. Do you not have what you need? Then ask your father who knows what you need and he'll provide it for you. Trust him and then thank him. Or are you in a situation where you do have all you need? Great. Thank God and be content with what he's given you. Are you in a situation, most of us in this room probably are, where you have more than you need? Great. Be generous. Be content with what God's given you and thank him for it. In other words, no matter what our station, no matter what our situation, we should be content with God who's given himself to us in Christ, in the covenant of grace, and be content with what he's given us. Because who's the one who's given it to us? Our loving, heavenly Father. And since he's taking care of our greatest need, reconciliation with him Through his son, we can trust him with all of these lesser things. Amen? What does Jesus tell us to do? Seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness, and all of these other things will be added to it. So Paul says we should be content because when coupled with godliness, it's a means of great gain. Because in the end of the day, we leave all of this behind anyway, and we don't need much. And finally, fourthly, we should be content Because greed will completely and utterly ruin us. Look at verses 9 and 10 with me again. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. 
For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Now this verse here, especially verse 10, gets misquoted all the time, doesn't it? What do you hear people say if they try to bring this up? Money is the root of all evil. Wait, is that what Paul says? Well, he says that if you cut off the first part of the sentence. But he says, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. The problem's not wealth. Again, the problem's not what you have or what you don't have. The problem is greed. It's a lust after more and more and more money, more finances. And the Bible is very clear that if you have that desire, if you have that love, it's evil and it will never be enough. Listen to what Ecclesiastes, the preacher, says in Ecclesiastes 5, verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. It's impossible. Nor he who loves wealth, his income. In other words, if you love or lust after money, it will never satisfy you. It's incapable of doing that. You weren't created for money to love it. You were created for God to love him. Great example of this, I apologize for all the J.D. Rockefeller references. My dad made many as I was growing up. But someone asked him once, how much money do you need? Because Rockefeller was the most wealthy man alive at the time. And the reporter was like, how much do you need? And I imagine with a smirk on his face, Rockefeller said, just a little bit more. And isn't that how we are? It's never enough. I need more. And Jesus warns against this. He says, listen, in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Don't try to make God and money your God. It's a fool's errand. It's impossible. It's not what God created us for. And so you're not going to be able to make it work. And so you see, these are just a few of the warnings. You guys, I had a whole lot more that I cut out for the sake of time. But warning after warning, the Lord's saying, warning us, do not love money. We're so susceptible to fall for it. But we weren't created for it because it's idolatry. And you see, Paul says, it's not just that it's idolatry that's the problem with the love of money. Uh, the other part of the problem is that if you love it, it's going to make your life an absolute disaster. An absolute wreck. And this should, again, make perfect sense to us. Because if you're seeking something that you were not created to seek, then your life's going to be miserable. But if you're seeking God, you're pursuing the great end for which you've been made himself. And so Paul says the love of money, it's a snare. It's a trap that people fall into. And through harmful desires, it will ruin and destroy you. And some will even wander away from the faith because of their love of money. What's a great example from the scriptures that comes to mind? How about Judas Iscariot? You think about Judas as a lover of money? We know he was a lover of money. And what came of his life? He ends up killing himself. He's so guilty over betraying Christ. So what are the two evidences that he loved money? First of all, John tells us in John 12, verses 6 and 7, who had the purse strings, who held the money bag for the disciples? It was Judas. 
And John tells us in no uncertain terms that Judas regularly, selfishly, sinfully dipped into that to please and satisfy himself. And then obviously the example that we're all aware of, he betrays Christ, our Lord and Savior, for 30 pieces of silver. Now, he had bigger problems than just his love of money, but that was a big one. And how did it end up? It not only ended up making his life miserable, this life, racking him with guilt, but then plunged him into hell in the next. And again, it makes sense that love of money would destroy us because we were not created for that. So, brothers and sisters, let us be warned. Don't love the scraps of this world. Don't live for them. Don't live for what moth and rust and inflation can destroy. But love your eternal Savior, even the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, in closing, I want to make three points here. One, both the poor and the rich can love money. I don't want you to to hear this tonight and go, well, you know what? I'm not rich. I'm certainly not Rockefeller. I'm not Warren Buffett, so I'm not wealthy. I don't need to worry about that. No, no, no. I I was reading, actually, I think it was John Stott's commentary this week, and his argument, which I almost completely buy, is that Paul is actually addressing the poor in Ephesus when he is writing these verses. Why? Because the poor are the ones who are without, and so they're just craving for something that they don't have. And how many stories have we heard of people picking themselves up by their bootstraps, right? This is the American dream in some people's minds. And becoming wildly wealthy, going from rags to riches. And they have this drive because they were once without. And so I don't want you to tune out and go, oh, I'm not rich. Because by worldly standards, every one of us in here is rich. We can fall prey to this whether we're wealthy or whether we are poor. Second of all, I don't want you to misunderstand And hear me telling you that, okay, well, I need to commit myself to poverty then. That's a clear conclusion. No, that's not what Paul's saying. He's not driving us to some austerity or asceticism that that it's somehow good in and of itself to go without. Now, our culture could use a big dose of going without. (laughs) Probably be good for us. But Paul's point is really summed up well by John Stott. He says in his little commentary on 1 Timothy, Paul is not for poverty against wealth, but contentment against covetousness. I love it. That's exactly how to sum this up. It's not about being wealthy or poor. It's about being content with God and what he's given you rather than covetous of what your neighbor has or the life that God has not given you. And so I don't want you to wrongly think that God's good gifts are to be rejected. Paul has already said in 1 Timothy 4 verse 3, That God is the good creator who gives us all things to enjoy with thanksgiving. And later on in chapter 6, this very chapter before us, he's going to say in verse 17 that God richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. So God's not against us having and enjoying luxuries, but he is against us coveting. So by his grace, let's be content with what he gives us. Here's my last little point. If you've been sitting here listening to this, like me, because I'm sitting under the word. I'm not just teaching it to you. I'm teaching it to myself as well. I'm stricken with, I'm a discontent person. I do struggle with discontentment. I have, by God's grace, grown in it, but I'm still given to discontentment. So what do we do about that, brothers and sisters? What are we to do? Well, first of all, we're to repent and hate our discontentment. 
and understand that it's a vile sin against God. See it as the vile sin that God himself says that it is. And then, in faith, we turn to the one, the Lord Jesus Christ, our substitute, who was perfectly content in our place. Because what did Jesus say of himself in his earthly ministry? He said, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to rest his head. And yet he was perfectly content with God. He was perfectly content with the lot that his father had given him because he had what he needed. And as we see that, brothers and sisters, we need to understand Jesus came to do that for you and for me so that we are counted as perfectly content in Christ. And then on the cross, he pays the penalty that our malcontented hearts deserve. Hell on the cross in our place. And so because that's true, And since we are united to Jesus, here's the reality. We will grow by God's grace in contentment. And you want to know how he works that growth in us? It's by doing what you're doing right now, being here at evening worship, being there at morning worship, feeding on the word throughout the week, communing with the Lord. It's as we feast on communion and fellowship with him that the things of this world become distasteful to us and we understand that all that we have is in him and so we ought to give ourselves completely to that and we ought to understand that Christ is going to teach us contentment he will what does Paul say he says I learned contentment in Philippians 4 verse 11 well who do you think taught him that Jesus did And so the Lord Jesus Christ, who alone is our sufficiency, is teaching us as well. So let us continue to look to him, brothers and sisters, asking him to make us content, knowing that godliness with contentment is indeed great gain. Lord Jesus, make us such a people, we pray. And we ask these things in your name and for your sake. Amen.